You're listening to 88.9 FM, KUCI Irvine. The opinions expressed on this program do not reflect the views of KUCI or the University of California, Irvine. Eight. We've worked together for years. Seven. I'm the parking attendant. I park your car every day. One in eight Americans is struggling with hunger. Six. We speak at PTA meetings all the time. Including millions of children and seniors. Five. I went to summer camp with your son last year. Four. I'm your old friend. We went to high school together. Someone you know is in need. Three. I work at the gas station. I pump your gas. Two. I'm your neighbor. Our kids are classmates. Who's the one in eight in your life that needs help? One. We live next door to each other. You can make a difference through Feeding America and its nationwide network of more than 200 food banks. Take action at feedingamerica.org slash one in eight. A public service announcement brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes about the same time to create a dropout. The difference between a child becoming one or the other could be you. Studies prove that reading to a child regularly dramatically improves reading skills. And kids who read well by third grade are four times as likely to graduate. So United Way is calling for one million volunteers over the next three years. We're asking you to step up, make a pledge, tutor a child who needs help, mentor a kid who needs someone on their side, volunteer to read to children, make a difference. Because when a child advances, we all advance. Entire communities improve. The path to success or failure starts long before graduation day. And the difference between a graduate and a dropout could be you. Be a reader, tutor or mentor. Give, advocate, volunteer. Live United. Take the pledge. Go to liveunited.org now. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Happy Labor Day, everybody. I'm your host, Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. Hope nobody's in a funk this Labor Day. I have a very special guest coming on the show in just a little bit. I want to introduce her. It's Judy Whitmore. She explores adventures in the sky in Come Fly With Me, her debut novel, which draws from Whitmore's own success as a pilot. She got her pilot's license in Aspen, Colorado, after her friend John Denver helped her overcome her fear of flying, and she's been soaring from one adventure to the next ever since. Her debut novel, Come Fly With Me, is the story of a woman coming into her own in a world where the sky is the limit. The book has won the Editor's Choice Award at the San Diego State University 17th Annual Writers' Conference and placed as a finalist in both the New Jersey Romance Writers' Put Your Heart in a Book contest and the Colorado Romance Writers' Heart of the Rockies contest. Judith was inspired to pursue her pilot's license not long after confronting her fear of flying in a small plane in Colorado. She earned her commercial pilot's license and an instrument rating 
and became a regular in local search and rescue missions. Her next adventures revolved around an acclaimed independent theater production and a return to Southern California where she settled with her second husband and earned her master's degree in clinical psychology. It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Judith Whitmore. Hi, Judith. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. You have such an interesting uh, backstory, what led you up to being a pilot, and we talked offline. I was wondering if you'd tell me a little bit about your background. Well, I've, I've had a very interesting life. I've been a, I've been a jet pilot. I've been a theater producer. Whoa. I raised two children. I've been a marriage and family therapist, and now I'm a writer. Incredible. Do you feel like these experiences have layered you as a writer? I mean, that everything has been meant for a reason? I, I mean, I think so. I think that you have that. I draw on lots of experiences in my life, and I've been fortunate enough to have a wide variety, and I think that can't help but inform what comes out on the page. That's great. Now, tell me about uh, your whole experiences. You, you've always had a fear of flying, is that correct? I was terribly afraid of flying when I... It, this. This fear it didn't start when I was a young child because I flew places with my parents. It started, I would say, in my very early twenties. It started um, why just after I got off. I don't know. It just all of a sudden. I think I must have seen or heard of an airplane crash, and for some reason, I see. I, I just didn't, never wanted to fly anymore. I just didn't want to get on an airplane. And all, yeah. Although I did, I didn't want to, but I did. And it was always just weeks of torment before I had to go anywhere. Awful. Awful. Yes. So what made you finally decide to do this? You know, I had moved from California to Aspen, and uh, my, all of my family was back in California. And uh, it was really hard to get to Aspen. You had to fly from LAX to Denver, then get on a small plane from Denver to Aspen, and I just didn't want to get on that small plane. So what I did for a couple of years was I would fly to Denver, and then I would always rent a car oh in gosh. Denver and then drive to Aspen. And if you've ever done that in the wintertime in well, a whiteout snowstorm... Yes, I've been there. That's, that's <laughs> a real experience. And um, after a couple of years of this, I remember that one day we were... I was flying with my husband and my kids, and my husband said to me, look, when we get to Denver, if there isn't a cloud in the sky, would you please fly to Aspen instead of us <laughs> having to rent a car? And I said, sure, no problem. Okay. And then I got to Denver, and I saw that wisp of a cloud in the sky, and I said, no, we have to drive. Oh, no. <laughs> so he didn't talk to me the whole way. Oh. And I thought... I just have got to do something about this. And also, around that time, um, my closest neighbors in Aspen were John and Annie Denver. And John was a pilot, okay. and he had this great-looking Learjet. And mm -hmm. I knew it was just a matter of time before the invited us so to you go looked at this. With wait, them. you looked at this plane, you thought, this, is, this thing's kind of cool, I think. Yes. I, okay. So I'm thinking, I, I, I could get in that plane. <laughs> And, um, but, I, but I honestly had to deal with this issue of not being able to get back and forth easily from L.A. So one day I just said, that's it. I'm going to learn how to fly. So I, did, I, didn't tell, I didn't tell anybody. I just went to the airport and I made a, an appointment for a flying lesson for the next day. And I went home 
and I cooked dinner. I cooked a fabulous dinner for my family, and then I read the kids' extra stories at bedtime, <laughs> and then I went into my room to do what I had never done before, and that was to write my will. Oh, my gosh, Judy. <laughs> I thought that was going to be the end of me the next day. Well, you know what's interesting? I have to back up a second. You went from not, not being confident to get on a plane to, I think I'm going to fly them. I, I think it was an issue of control. I, I, yeah. I, I think for me, it was answering that question, how does all that heavy metal and glass <laughs> yes. seats, and, and how does it all stay in the air? I just couldn't understand it. And you want to just take control. And I just wanted to be in control of I my own life. Great. I think it's great. So I, I just walked into the airport the next day, and that was it. And you didn't tell anybody? I, I told my husband. That morning? That, that morning. And what was his reaction? He, he was shocked. <laughs> he was totally shocked. And, um, you know, he, he just said, well, you know, go for it. Great. Great. And I did. And what was that first experience like? You know, it was very scary. When I got to the airport, I walked into the flight school, and my, when they introduced me to my, my instructor, yes. I, was, I was just aghast because he was just a kid. I thought, <laughs> that, I thought the person who would teach me to fly would certainly be at least, I don't know, 40 years old, 50, 60, somebody who had lots and lots oh, of experience. Funny. But instead, here was this guy Young who guy. was in college. In and college? In college. I think he was 19 or 20 years old, and he had this little wispy mustache. He looked about 12, and all I could think about was, oh, my goodness, I'm going up in an airplane with him. With a guy that barely has his driver's license. Exactly. <laughs> so he, he took me out to the tarmac and um, showed me this little tiny plane, and, of course, as as much of a fear as I had of big planes, I had an even greater fear of small planes. And oh, no. uh, he took me to this little four-seater plane, and he walked me around the plane, and he, you know, he said, he said we're going to do the pre-flight. And I was so nervous. I thought he said, we're going to pray for flight. <laughs> so Judy. So I, I, I just closed my eyes, and he said, what are you doing? I'm praying and for I flight. And I said, praying. <laughs> he said, well, come on, we have lots to do. Oh, funny. And then from there on out, you, did you get a little more confident? Uh, well, I, that he after after we did the pre-flight, we got in the plane, and he, he turned the plane on. It was sort of like just driving a car. He just turned the key, and the propeller started to yes to uh, wind up. And then he taxied the plane to the end of the runway, and he said to me, all you have to do is push in the throttle, and when it gets to about 65 knots, just pull back on the wheel. And, you're going and up. my heart was pounding and I said, okay, I could do this. And he, and the tower cleared us for takeoff. And then as we started to roll down the runway, yes, this magical thing happened. What happened? All of a sudden, I got really excited and thought, wow, That's this fantastic. could be really fun. And then by the time we actually lifted off the ground, it was as though a miracle had happened. I was in love with flying. That it is fantastic. That, fast. that is fantastic. It was a really exciting experience being in control of, of a plane myself. You know, it's like that's all it took for you to just take control of, you know, of the basically of everything and see, face your fear. 
it, facing your fear. Facing your fear is it's a great challenge, but if you do it, um, it, it brings a lot of relief. Absolutely. And it sounds like you had a really nice pilot. I had a lovely flight instructor. He was very nice. And even though he was very young, he was a great instructor. And um, I stayed with him until I got my private pilot's license. Which was how many years? Oh, it took, I think, about six months. Oh, that's it? Yeah. It, yeah, it's, it, takes, it doesn't take that long. What was your husband's reaction that night when he, when he saw you? He was really excited, actually. I mean, he knew the, how debilitating it was for me to have to, you know, live with that fear. And um, he was really excited. And he actually ended up, after I got my pilot's license, he actually ended up becoming a pilot himself. Really? Yeah. You, look how you inspired him. That's right. incredible. That's oh true. Oh, my gosh. That's true. Now, you were talking uh, offline. You'd gone through a divorce. Yes. Do you feel like the whole issue of flying and the fear, there was some correlation here? You know, I think as far as, as flying, uh, the way that it sort of tied in with my divorce, you know, when, when, you, when someone is going through a divorce, mm-hmm. it's, life is very chaotic. There's lots of uncertainty. It's very scary. You don't know what the future holds. And um, when I was going through this divorce, I I was anxious, I was depressed, I was overwhelmed at being a single mother, and um, I had decided to move back to, to leave Aspen and move back to West L.A. because I felt that I needed some family support around me. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision after I moved back to Los Angeles that um, I would go on to get some advanced ratings, some pilot ratings, because I looked at flying as a way to bring discipline to my life. That's good. That um, I wanted a schedule. What I did was after I took my kids to school, I would drop the kids off at school, and then I would go to the airport, and I would go flying. And after the kids came home from school, they did their homework, and I studied my flight manuals. That's incredible. Yeah, and um, I felt that it was, you know, flying is a very disciplined activity, and I felt that that sort of overflowed into my life and gave me more a sense uh, of discipline in my my daily life, raising my children. Well, finding your passion, uh, obviously, it helps you get out of your funk. Yes. And for those just tuning in, I'm your host, Janine. We're talking to Judith Whitmore. This is Get the Funk Out. And... You know, so so you found your passion, and your focus must have been tremendous. So here your kids are doing their homework. You're, you're focusing on what you love to do, and your confidence level must have just soared. It did. I, you know what? I felt that um, after, I, after I got my, my Learjet type rating, I, you know, in order to get a Learjet type rating, because when I moved back to L.A., I only had a private pilot's license. Wait, excuse me. What is a Learjet typewriting? Uh, type rating. Type rating. Type rating. You know, every airplane over 12,500 pounds requires, uh, in a way, a separate license to fly. I see. So I wanted to be able to fly a Learjet. I had, uh, I had traveled with John and Annie Denver in their plane, and I loved it so much. I thought, that I'm going to set that as a goal for myself. I'm going to become a Learjet pilot. That's great. And... Um, there's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through before you can do that. You have to get a multi-engine rating. You have to ha- get an instrument rating. And th- each of those, you know, advanced ratings takes time and a lot of practice and, and a lot of studying. Mm-hmm. So um, I found that, uh, you know, it was that studying that brought 
a lot of um, order. Did you feel, I, I want to interrupt for a second, did you feel before you were doing all this, like you were kind of lost in your life? I, I, after, you know, after I got divorced, I, I felt lost. I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's a certain, um, you know, when you're, when you're married, you know, life is very predictable. You take the kids to school, you work at PTA, you take carpools, you take them to piano lessons, there's a lot of driving, there's, yes. but it's all part of the day and it all becomes normal. Yes. And then, all of a sudden, everything changes. Mm-hmm. And life feels very... Um, Uncertain. Just very, very, very uncertain, very unpredictable, and and again, very scary. Yes, very scary. Mm. And and flying for me was a way just to. I mean, I didn't actually look at it intentionally that this is going to bring order to my life, but it did. It just happened. Yeah. Yeah. Now you became a clinical psychologist. How did that happen? You know, after after I got divorced and I moved back to Los Angeles, um, I did what every single mother does. I went to therapy, mm-hmm. and I and I really liked the process. I had never done it before, and I thought this I could do this. I could I could really do this. And um, I had quit college to get married initially to get married, and I had my children young, very young, yes. and. I decided that's it. I'm going to go back to school and become a therapist. So I went. Good for you. So I went back to school. I finished my BA, and then I got uh, a master's degree in clinical psychology and became a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I had a practice in West LA for about eight or nine years before I moved down here to Orange County. I love, by the way, on my blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org, I posted your bio and you said, after having enough therapy to undoubtedly pay for my therapist's swimming pool and her Mercedes, <laughs> I decided I liked the process. <laughs> that, yeah, that's what I, I was there enough when I thought, oh, this is, and you know, if you're with a therapist that long, you develop a nice relationship with them. I thought, oh, I'd love to do this. I would love to help people. That's nice. The way she helped me. So nice. So nice. And for a while, when I when I did move my practice down here, um, I felt very rewarded that all the people that I saw in Los Angeles all wanted to come here. To, oh, how nice! To Orange <laughs> County, to my office here, and then I I obviously helped them transition to somebody up there. But it was a very good feeling. And then that led you to become a writer. You know, I had always wanted to be a writer. I had wanted to be a writer since I was in high school, and I would always write little poems mm-hmm. and little stories, and then um, when I got to Aspen, I took, I took classes at a local college in how to write magazine articles, and had never published anything, but just was always writing, I have files full of, of I, my I writing. I hear you, I hear you, I have all this stuff I've never done anything with. So, um, about, um, I, I guess it was about eight or nine years ago, I got in the mail a uh, brochure from UC Irvine. And um, I, was just, I was looking for something to do. I had my, I had my therapy practice here, but I, wanted, I just wanted to, you know, I always enjoy taking classes, so I thought, let me see what they have to offer. And they had a class. It was called How to Start Your Novel. Oh, I love it. And I had always wanted, as I said, I always wanted to write a book, and I had this, and I had an idea for a book about, for a novel about flying. And so 
I signed up for this class, and the class was going to be starting in about a month or so. And um, my current husband, Wes, and I went on vacation. And while I was on vacation, I typed up an outline, a chapter-by-chapter outline for the book that became Come Fly With Me. And um, when we got back to town, I started this class. It was taught by a woman named Luella Nelson, Mm -hmm. who is an amazing writing teacher, coach, mentor. Um, And after the class was over, she invited me to become part of one of the writers' groups that meet at her house. Oh, nice. So for the last eight years, I've been meeting every Wednesday night with the same group of writers. With Luella? With Luella. Now, was this UCI Extension? This was UCLA, UCI Extension, yes. Yeah, they have great classes. Uh, these classes were amazing. I ended up taking three different classes from her there. And um, like I say, I, there is no way I, I could have done this book with, without her and what she taught me. So that's incredible. But you, on vacation, did some of the pre-work, brought it in, and you were ready to go. I was ready to go. I thought, this, this is it. I, I'm very... I am very disciplined about, and I am very responsible, so when I know that I have, you know, I have to be present and be there, I, I do my homework. That's fantastic. And let me talk, talk a little bit about um, your bio a little bit. You were named after Judy Garland? Yes. My grandfather was, um, my grandfather was a violinist. He, was, he had been a classical violinist. And uh, he and his family were living in, I guess he was living in Chicago. He was a member of the NBC Orchestra back there. This was back in the very late 1930s. And he got a call from MGM Studios that he was very good friends with um, a woman named Jeanette McDonald, mm-hmm. who did a lot of musicals with uh, her partner, Nelson Eddy. Anyway, she wanted to work with my grandfather, so he picked up the family, moved back to Los Angeles, and then he stayed at MGM Studios for till he retired. So he became part of the orchestra. He was, he was a permanent member of that orchestra. That's incredible. And um, he worked with all of those great musical stars, but his favorite was Judy Garland, and he would oh. always tell my mom, stories about her and what a great singer she was and how nice she was. And so so nice. my mom named me after her. Oh. <laughs> and so were you very close with your grandfather? I was very close to my grandfather. We, our, our whole family is very close. When, when I was growing up, I lived within four blocks of all of my grandparents and all of my aunts and uncles. That's so nice. So what an influence on you musically. Yeah, he, yeah, he, was, um, he was a wonderful musician and, and also very disciplined, even though he had obviously a great job. When I would go to his house to visit, he spent four hours every day in the morning from like 9 to 1 yes. practicing. That is very disciplined. Yeah, if, I mean, you, I guess if you're a professional musician, you That's still you have do. to do it. Yes, so, and my grandmother was a musician also. My grandmother was orphaned when she was 13 years old, and she supported herself by playing the piano in silent movie houses. When you told me this the other day, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. 13, she was 13. playing, supporting her family. She was supporting her family. It, it, I think at 13, I don't know if my kids even knew how to cook these things at 13. <laughs> oh, 
And now your other side of the family, you were telling me you can definitely see how you're a lot like your other grandmother? Yes, my other grandmother was from the area, sort of the border between Russia and Poland. And um, that, when she was a very young girl, back at the turn of the last century, um, life was very chaotic there. And um, her parents decided that she was the oldest, so she was going to have to go to America and, uh, and you know, be the brave one. So at 15 and a half years old, my grandmother set out from her home. She kissed her parents goodbye, and she walked to Rotterdam. She with, walked to the Netherlands. Now you were telling me, was it with her brother? She walked with her 14 and a half year old brother. That's incredible. And the, yeah, mm-hmm. and the two of the, yeah the two of them went together. And I remember that she told me that halfway through that trip, she ended up getting scarlet fever, and she stayed in. Um, she somehow she found this uh, a, a farmer, a farmer and his wife, and um, she stayed in their barn, and they took care of her until she got better. She could have died. She could have died. I mean, no antibiotics, no nothing. What and, a story. Uh, she eventually came to America and got a job in a sweatshop and sent enough money home to bring her parents, her grandparents, and all of her brothers and sisters to America. That is some story. Yeah, and, and I always say that whenever I have to do something really, really difficult, yes, I always remember that I have her genes. And I think to myself, oh, if my grandmother could walk across Europe, surely I can do whatever the task is. Right. Exactly. Get yeah. through my writer's block. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Judith, wow. What a story. So, so I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I have a lot of very, very strong people in my, in my background. Well, it's great that you know these stories and you can appreciate where you've come from. And, you know, that would definitely give me strength hearing stories about my grandmother. Yeah. Something like that. And, and, and also, if I, if I think about my dad, too, was very strong. You know, my dad um, was a, he was part of that Depression era and um, had to quit school at 13 to go to work. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the stories that they told, that he's told me about what it was like not, I mean, had having so little money that what they would eat for dinner would be fried bread because that was basically all they had. And being so cold, I, he told me that, you know, our, my family's from New York and they were, they were all from Brooklyn. He used to push a push cart from Brooklyn over the Brooklyn Bridge down to the Fulton Fish Market. Probably as a young boy, right? As a young boy, yeah. at, 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 from when he was 13 and 14 years old for those two years. And um, I remember that he told me that he was crossing the Brooklyn Bridge one night. It was the dead of winter, and he had holes in his gloves, and he didn't have a really heavy coat, and really freezing. And he said when he got across the Brooklyn Bridge, there was a guy who was selling potatoes. He had a little grill. Yes. And, and you know, a, a potato was a penny. And so my dad said he really thought for a while, should I... Should I buy it or or not? And he eventually decided he bought the potato, and he told me he didn't eat it. He just bought it so he could hold it because his hands were so cold. Oh, my gosh. So, and I think that, you know, that he worked, how hard he worked to become successful. And um, 
I, I take heart from stories like that. Yes, yes. You know, a lot of kids need to hear these stories nowadays. You know, they've got their phones and their expensive sneakers. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, well there's, there's, I think there's a lot of expectation today that, um, that if it's out there, I need it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and it's not that your grandfather wanted to eat the potato. He wanted to stay warm. He just, yeah, it was my dad. Your yeah, dad, he, excuse no, me. No, he just wanted to stay warm. Yeah. That's all. Mm. That's all. Judith, we're going to take a quick break, and we come back. I want to talk more about your book, and uh, perhaps you want to share a story of being in a funk and uh, how you found your way out. I sure will. All right. Hang tight. Okay. We've been talking with Judith Whitmore. I'm your host, Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. We'll be back in just a short bit. The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show, go to KUCI.org. Close your eyes for a moment. Now imagine you're away from it all. Beside a crystal clear mountain stream, the cool grass crunches underfoot. Take a deep breath and drink in the sound of water cascading over the stones as birds call out from above. A real paradise like this isn't easy to come by, but it does still exist. And with your help, places like this one can last forever. You see, the Nature Conservancy works locally with communities, businesses, and people like you to preserve the most precious natural places around the world. They protect the animals that live there, the plants that grow there, and even the water. That way, this beautiful place will be beautiful forever. And we'll make sure that closing your eyes will never be the only way to get there. I'm Paul Newman. Help the Nature Conservancy save the last great places. Visit the Nature Conservancy at nature.org. That's nature.org. If you're a veteran of Iraq or Afghanistan, like me, coming home can be harder than expected. I felt a little out of place, but it turns out I wasn't alone. At IAVA.org, there's a free online community of thousands of OIF and OEF vets who've got your back here just like they did over there. So now I'm never alone. I can get the resources I need and talk to tons of people who understand where I'm coming from. Whether it's navigating the GI Bill or VA hospitals, managing the transition home, or meeting people you can share stories with, you'll find it at IAVA.org. Even if it's just everyday stuff, like getting tips on where to find a nice sweater for my dog. Did he just say that? (laughs) Okay, maybe not that, but everything else. No matter where you are, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America is there for you. Join our community at IAVA.org. We've got your back. Brought to you by Iraq, Afghanistan, Veterans of America, and the Ad Council. Hi there. You're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. We're back with Judith Whitmore. Hi, Judith. Hi, Janine. I know you've been one of the biggest funks you went through, obviously, was a divorce. And then uh, getting through it, uh, probably, obviously, flying helped you through that. But are there any other moments in time you want to share you were through a funk, maybe some advice for people that are dealing with a tough time? You know, I remember when I, when I was writing Come Fly With Me, I, had, I was about three-quarters of the way through it, and I kept thinking to myself, I'm never going to finish this book. <laughs> I, this is, I'm just, that, that's it. I, I, you know, I've been working on this for a year and a half, and that's the end. And I was feeling really very concerned that I had put a lot of time into this, and for, I didn't write for about two weeks, and, I, and then I just said to myself, you know, 
I do a lot of self-talking, and I think it's important. That's I think good. that's an important thing to do. I think that the message that you send yourself is very important. When I said to myself, I'm never going to finish this book, yes. it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course. And I think that the talk that you do to yourself has so much more of an impact than you realize. And when you say negative things, when you think negative things, it starts to come out in negative behavior. Yes, so true. So after a couple of weeks of doing this, I thought, no, this no, this is not, I am going to finish this book. And what I did was I called five of my writer friends and I said, okay, here's the deal. Yes. I rented a house on Orcas Island. I don't know if you know where that is. It's way up in the San Juan Islands, up in Washington State. Yes. And I said, I rented a house. I rented a log cabin. And I said, you are all invited to come up there for a week. (laughs) The only thing that you have to agree to is you have to agree to provide the meals one day. You have to cook and clean up one day a week. That's a good deal. So I went up to Orcas Island with all these writers, and we sat from morning till night around the dining room table, all of us with our computers. Did you tell them you were at this point, this struggling point, and you needed help? Yeah. um, Two of them were in my writing group, Mm -hmm. and they knew that it was, uh, you know, that I, I was working towards finishing this book, and... The others were just writer, uh, just other writers that I knew, and I said to them, "It'll be good. It'll be good energy for all of us to be together because we all had projects that we're working on. I was trying to finish my book, <clears throat> and um, and you know there is there is something about connecting with people who are going through the same. Yes, I, I don't want, I don't want to use the word problem. The same issue. The people sure. have the same issues that you have, right?" Because there's sort of this synergy that happens when you get together, and uh, it becomes, you help each other. You can't do it alone. Sometimes you just can't do you, it alone. No, you need, you need a support group. Yeah. I, I'm a firm believer in, in a support group. I'm a firm believer of doing whatever it takes to get you through whatever you're going through, whether that means going to therapy, going out and running for, you know, a half hour in the morning, meditating, whatever it is that, that, uh, that you need, I think it's better if you can do it with other people. How did you find this group, by the way? How did you establish this group of writer friends? You know, it happened that uh, after I took that writing class at UC Irvine, um, my instructor, I, had, I actually had heard from another teacher at UC Irvine that if I ever wanted to write a novel, I should contact Lou Nelson to see if I could get into one of her writing groups. So I ended up taking this class from her at UC Irvine, and, um, and she invited me to, to, uh, you know, to attend one of her groups. And you know, being able to write a book is – writing a book is a very solitary activity, Sure is. And you have to spend lots of hours by yourself. And the idea of having to show up every week at a writer's group where you are expected to bring the pages that you wrote the week before, mm-hmm. it's, as I was saying, it's a little bit like going to Weight Watchers. Yeah. <laughs> so if they're going to weigh you in every week, you know that, that it's too embarrassing to have gained weight, so you're going to have to really stick to that diet. Right. And, and uh, every You're week show up. Yeah. And it's the same thing with writing. And so I think it was being part of this group, part of this group of writers who were all struggling the same way that I was and who all continue to struggle. Several of them have been published now, but we all still struggle with getting those words on the page. 
Sure, it's very common, but you know that's that's great advice because uh, you think you you should be able to do it on your own, but asking for help and getting that great support group really matters. I think there. I think that we all have fantasies that we should be able to do lots of things on our own. I think mm-hmm. all you have to do is watch television or go to the movies, and you see characters who who are just have superhuman <laughs> talents, and that. Those are movies meant to entertain. It's not the real life. Real life no people kidding. <laughs> need real life help from other people. That's right. And, it, you know, it, I find that I'll bounce ideas off my husband or my sister-in-law. And, you know, you, you hear yourself saying these things and you're like, no, that doesn't work. Or, oh, yeah, I never thought of that. And, you know, you kind of answer these questions through conversation. Exactly. I remember I used to do a lot of fundraising when um, my kids were small. And I had, was on a, a lot of different boards of different charities. And one of the things that I always found so productive is when you would sit around a table brainstorming about ideas about, okay, how are we going to bring money in this year for this project or next year for that project? And when you just sort of stop censoring yourself and let your ideas fly and you're in a group where all this creativity is happening, it brings out the best in you. That's great. That's great. So as far as funks go, do you have a mantra that you live by? I have a mantra. We, we talked about one that we both share, which is, uh, it's never too late to become what you might have been. Oh, the George Eliot quote, yes. Yeah. I mean, it really is true, you know, that you never know who, who you might have been. And also, um, I have a little thing on my desk. It says, to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you sort of can't be, you, you can't, can't worry about what other people are going to think. That's right. You have to, you just got to go for it. That's right. Are you living this life that you feel, wow, I never imagined this, or that you feel like, I've always dreamed of doing these things and I'm finally doing it? I I think it's the latter. You know, I've always dreamed of being a writer. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you this really cute story. I was in Hawaii a very, very long time ago. It was right after I got divorced when I was trying to, you know, put my life back together. And I was sitting in in a hotel a coffee shop by myself and across sitting next to me was the singer Kenny Loggins and oh, his funny. wife and I saw from across the room this little girl coming towards us with yes. an autograph book oh. and so I just assumed that she would go to Kenny Loggins yes. but she came up to me and she said can I have your autograph oh. and I said well, why do you want my autograph and she said because because you're a famous writer And I I said, no, I said, you have me confused with somebody else. And I I felt so sorry that she walked away sort of sad. But I always remember that story because I thought it was was sort of the universe telling me, go for your dream. Do it. Don't be afraid. And like I say, the thing that I've carried with me since I was very young was this desire to write. And here I am with my new book out and um, really living the dream I imagined for myself. I always wanted to be an author. And when I pick up a copy of my book, and, and I have to say, I love the cover art, and, <laughs> and I love seeing my name on it, and it's very, very exciting. And the book, I haven't read the book yet, but I read a little excerpt. Um, it's a, you know, how, how difficult was it to just get into it? You sound like you had the outline... You know, what was the process like? Um, it was, um, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to write, um, I wanted to write a book about 
uh, I wanted to write a book, a love story about flying, because I knew I had, um, at one point in my life, um, I had a boyfriend who was also a pilot, and we would fly places together. And there's something really fun and romantic about being shoulder to shoulder in the enforced closeness of a cockpit with somebody. And wait, I thought, wait, back up a second. So at one point you were fine with flying. Well, no, this was no, this was after this was after I was a pilot. Oh, after you're a pilot. Okay. Yeah, after I was a pilot. Yes. After, oh, the boyfriend. Okay. After, yeah, yeah. After after I got divorced, I had a boyfriend. Yes. And he was a pilot too, and so we would fly places together. And I thought, how romantic is that to be able to get in an airplane great. with somebody and fly to New York or or fly to Cabo San Lucas. That was great. And I thought, I'm going to write a book about that. That's great. That's great. And um, and I have to say the the. And the inspiration also for writing the book was to explain to people in, you know, not in a, in a nonfiction book, but in a novel, how much fun flying can be. That it's something that you don't really have to be afraid of. Now when you get on big, big planes, are you like, okay, I want to go in the cockpit? <laughs> I, well, yes, unfortunately, since 9-11, you can't do that anymore. But up until 9-11, I would always stop at the cockpit and talk to the pilots and they were always really friendly. That's nice. And um, yeah, and and any time I go someplace, I am thrilled to be on an airplane. Oh, that's great. That is great. And you've written two other books. One is Shakespeare Unplugged. I have. I have a Shakespeare. Actually, it's the Shakespeare book is coming out at Christmas this year, and I have a cookbook that's coming out hopefully with in a, in about six weeks. Good for you. And and uh, the cookbook. When did you start writing that? Um, the cookbook I. Put to, started writing several years ago. I wanted a way to preserve all the recipes that my grandmothers had given to me. Oh, that's great. And um, so this is a book that's sort of a, that's a gift to my children, and also all the proceeds from the sale of this book, which is called All Time Favorites, are going to a charity called the Dream Street Foundation. Oh, that's so nice. And um, Dream Street Foundation um, runs camping programs in five different states for children with life-threatening illnesses. Yes, I had read about that. That is great, Judy. Yeah. Now, Shakespeare Unplugged, where were you when I was in high school and I was lost? <laughs> you know, when, um, when I was working as a theater producer, I spent a lot of time in England and had never really liked Shakespeare when I was in high school. No. And I remember going to a Shakespeare play over, uh, over in London and absolutely loving it. I mean, I realized... I didn't need to know, I didn't, may not know every single bit of dialogue that they said or understood it, but yes. I, I understood, I got the gist of it. The gist of it, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that the story was wonderful, and I tried to instill in my kids this love of Shakespeare that I now have, and they don't want anything to do with it, so I decided I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find some way to do it. So my husband and I wrote the dialogue, and a very dear friend of ours, Mark Bennett, did the the drawings for a comic book version of Romeo and Juliet. And it's got very up-to-date language. You know, they're yes. walking down the street saying, hey, dude, here come the Montagues. And <laughs> um, very different from Shakespeare, but the story is exactly the same. Oh, it is. Okay, so you've just taken out the thee, thou, though. And exactly. <laughs> and very up-to-date, hip language. And, um, and the story is condensed. Like I say, it's comic book format. I think it's um, 32 pages of drawings. Okay. And um, it just gives the highlights of the story in a way that kids 
from, you know, early, honestly, as early as 9 or 10 could appreciate, but also can be used as a study guide for somebody in college who doesn't want to wade through the original. Well, it's funny because I remember being in high school and going to Macbeth in New York, because I grew up on the East Coast, and sitting there and looking over at half my friends are asleep. And, you know, you just, you're trying to understand what in the world are they saying. And Well, you know, that Elizabethan language is very hard to understand, especially, you know, for a 15-year-old or 16-year-old. It is. We were lost. Yeah. We were really lost. So anyway, we're hoping that this is going to do well. And if if, if, if our Romeo and Juliet does well, then we'll tackle the rest of the plays. So forget those monarch notes. <laughs> well, we think the, we like these better. I think that that sounds much better. So uh, what else is going on with you? Anything coming up next? Just coming more up, versions well, of actually, that? Well, um, actually, I'm rehearsing diligently. Um, I gave a concert last year at uh, the Shady Canyon Country Club with two of my friends. Hmm. And we are going to um, have another concert this October. And we're getting ready for that. And then next year, we're going to do our yearly concert in New York. Really? Where? At Carnegie Hall. Oh, come on. Seriously. When is that going to be? It's going to be October of 2014. Oh, that, oh, I would love to see that. So this is, uh, this is really a dream come true. You know, I think I, I told you I used to, I've, I've sung my whole life. I started off, um, I worked for Capitol Records as a background singer mm-hmm. when I was in college and um, did a little theater after that, and then hadn't sung for a long time until about, I, well, I sang for myself. I'm, I'm a pianist, and I would sing at home, but had not sung before an audience. I hadn't sung in front of an audience for 25 years. And um, my girlfriend invited me to do this with her, and I thought, yeah, why not? And it's just turned into a, just a joyful, Look joyful experience. Look at you. Is it that you didn't have the confidence to do it? or you? Just... No, I didn't have the time. I time. was just busy doing so many other things. Takes a, you know, it takes a lot of time to be a pilot and a writer. A, and a pilot therapist. and a writer and a this and a that. And a... Oh, what a life. Uh, anything else you would like to tell us? Because um, we're going to wrap up in just a few minutes. I know yeah. your website is judithwhitmore.com. Yeah, I, I guess I would like to say for, you know, I think when you're in a funk, it's very hard to believe you're ever going to get out of it. That's right. And I, I and it, it's hard to tell somebody else this will pass. But I think if you can have the wherewithal to tell yourself that message, I, I think yes. that's what's really important. That eventually it will pass, and that it will probably take some sort of effort on your own part to get it to pass. And through all this craziness, you'll become a stronger person. Definitely. Which you can't really see that when you're going through it. It's very difficult when you're going through it. Right. But, but, as, the, but as they say, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. So true. So true. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Oh, my gosh. Any other big things you want to do? I mean, you're flying planes and uh, I, I'm just, just writing. Well, I'm just um, starting my second book, so I'm just looking forward to, to working on that and getting that finished. Well, best of luck to you, and I I hope to meet you in person sometime. I hope so. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Janine. It was great. Thank you so much, Judith. Thank you, too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Judith Whitmore, and if you want to find out more about her, you can visit her website, which is judithwhitmore.com. And if you've missed any part of today's show, it'll be up on my show blog within the next hour, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. 
Coming up next, Sheldon Abbott with Cure for the Blues. He's in the house. Hey, Sheldon. And if you want to find out about being a guest on the show, it's very easy. Just send an email to Janine, J-A-N-E-A-N-E. That's the hard part. J-A-N-E-A-N-E at KUCI.org. Have a great holiday weekend, everybody. I'll be back next Monday. Thank you.